So here we are with the next phase two. I mean, I have to make the comparison. It's a member of the crew, one in this case rather than two, which I think was the first major mistake, in order to have them slowly reveal that they're intangible, even though there's a huge amount of logical gaps in why that actually works and how it works. And they go through and they try to interact with their crew members who lament them and speak more positively about them than they ever have before because they're absent and now they're speaking, you know, they're speaking positively to the dead. It's a very common human thing. And then, then it turns out there's a threat to the ship by someone else who they are not aware of and they need to stop them. And look, I fully, firmly, and formally believe in the idea of there's nothing new under the sun. So every story idea has been done to some extent or another at some point or another, especially on a show like this. But this is a little blatant. But you know what? I'd be willing to forgive that, if not for one thing, which we'll get to later. So they're examining these ruins. Okay, yep, I'm with it. Oh, there's a storm coming. We probably should have interacted with it uh, before it was basically right over our heads. But, you know, we, as we've already established, there is a recurring element on this show of not noticing storms from space. So, um, <laughs> whatever. It's a super dangerous storm. I will give the episode credit on this one point. The storm is super dangerous, not because it's a storm, but because it's got these polarizing shock whatevers, you know, bursts of what are effectively lightning. There's this bit where Hoshi says, we can just take uh, cover in the ruins. It'll be fine. Well... The problem is those ruins are, aren't really going to be affected by those bolts of death. But organic life is, which might explain why there's no biosigns. Ignore all the plants and stuff in the background. So, okay, we can't take cover. So let's take a, up in the shuttle pad. Well, polarizing will increase the chance of being struck, and being struck will cause damage to the people inside. So, again, can't take the shuttle up, so we have to beam. Credit where credit is due. We've basically engineered a situation where we have to beam. I've said before that I disagree with how the transporter exists on this show, but in the interest of fairness, this is a good implementation of it. This is an emergency situation uniquely crafted to ensure that beaming up is their only option. So in extreme and dangerous circumstances, they're willing to use the transporter. Now, I'm with that, except for the fact that that doesn't make sense at all. Here's the thing. Let's assume that you have this newfangled technology, and you're not sure if it works, and it's kind of risky and kind of dangerous, so you never use it. Uh, well, unless it's a dangerous situation, a very rare circumstance. So when you really need it, that's when you use it, and it works 100% of the time utterly reliably. You see the problem? If it's going to work every time reliably, then, we, then it's no longer the rare dangerous thing. And if it's the rare dangerous thing, it needs to be screwing up. Or there needs to be some cost associated. Maybe it's uh, really difficult to apply. Maybe it takes tons of resources. Maybe it takes tons of time. We've actually discovered... Uh, discovered. We, we've already covered the concept of a slow beam over in Half-Life 2. There was a teleporter that you take in that game that takes, I think it's like a week or two, I forget the exact time, in order to beam from one location to the other, a slow transport. So, you know, there's a lot of possible ways you can make there be a cost associated with this, which would make it far less likely to be used. And at first, I thought that's exactly what they were doing this episode. The, the transporter finally screws up. 
I know you're going to bring up Strange New World, but honestly, that he, one quick surgery and he was fine. I don't think that qualifies. But Hoshi slowly being phased out of existence? Okay. Okay, that kind of counts. By the way, this is a good time to mention that the cold open lasts 4 minutes and 37 seconds in this episode. It's not the longest. We've talked about the longest cold opens, which are really, really long compared to this. But it's just interesting to comment on because it actually goes from the events that actually happen to the events that are going on in her head seamlessly, of course. Oh yeah, spoilers. And it also kind of does this thing where it doesn't really establish anything other than the fact that she just beamed up. I'm kind of okay with that as a cold open, though, because the cold open is basically, wait, nothing's wrong. Everything went along perfectly, so what's the issue? And that's the cold open. It makes you think. It's kind of the opposite of the typical approach, where something is obviously wrong or something's clearly dangerous. Instead, everything's perfectly fine, to which you're like, well, hang on. <laughs> Why is everything perfectly fine, right? Anywho. <clears throat> so... um I actually just kind of sat here for a couple of minutes, not really taking any notes, because I just didn't have much to say. Uh, they ignore her initially at the table. Phlox actually appears out of nowhere. Um, there's ideas that are mentioned, like Cyrus, what's-his-face, which are then mentioned by other people as those ideas expand. Her birthmark shifts. Phlox brushes her off. People are upset. T'Pol, uh, you know, is, is, is knows about these sacred relics, to which... T Oh, she's like, how could you possibly know that? She overslept her shift by two hours. No one notified her, of course. She just overslept by two hours, because that's how that works. The reason I'm bringing all this up to this point is all of this is very typical dream stuff. This is actually probably the episode's strength, this chunk right here. Because everything's going wrong, but in ways that make sense if you don't really think about it. But for once, rather than this, this being action movie logic, it's more dream logic. And I know that those both seem very similar, but the difference is dream logic is one of those things where it's like, oh, okay. Wait, is, is dream logic? You know, I know that's the dumbest explanation I've ever given, but I bet you know exactly what I'm talking about. Things that are so logical and so deductive make so much sense in your reasoning when you're in a dream. Uh, dream logic also tends to follow patterns. Unlike action movie logic, which is who gives a damn, just kind of go with it. We're just trying to get from action set piece to action set piece without actually thinking about it for a millisecond. Um, dream logic does follow a progression and a pattern. It's just it doesn't actually make sense when you sit to think about it. But you can see the connecting points, like the Cyrus thing, for example. Flox just suddenly knowing about that and then having a reasonable explanation for it. Or maybe the fact that you know he just kind of pops into existence effectively, having <clears throat> ignored her, because that's a recurring element as well. And the ignoring her element then explains why nobody contacted her, even though she was two hours overdue for her shift. And you could see the connecting jumps. I'm not going to connect every single dot. But there is effort put into making those connecting jumps across the logic of the episode. You're probably seeing already why this isn't a lamentation. I bet some of you were expecting it. And, uh, again, like with uh, Dear Doctor, I can't quite in good conscience give a otherwise good episode of Lamentation status just because of the ending. I know I've already showed my hand on that twice, but we'll get there when we get there. I just wanted to mention that. Because I do think the middle part of this works quite well. Um, 
she sees no reflection in the mirror. Uh, you know, there's the thing where the water goes through her. Because we've got to have sexy. We have to have sexy, remember? That was a mandate. I'll give the episode this. <laughs> she gets into the training room, talks with Tucker, takes off her shirt. So it's, No, not like that. I mean, she's in a tank top or a sports bra kind of a thing. And some exercise pants, which actually looks really good on her, consequently. But more to the point is a logical progression of how she would be doing that to exercise. Then she goes intangible, so that's the outfit she's left in for the rest of the episode. I'm not saying I'm too super in favor of it, because it is still sexy for sexy's sake, but I would say this is a substantially better approach to the sexy mandate we've had for Season 2 than basically everything else we've had up till now. My opinion. <clears throat> I mean, at least it's part of the episode rather than just, hey, let's sit in the decon chamber and rub gel on each other or shove wool into my face. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. I'm getting off topic. <sighs> prude. <laughs> I'm not actually a prude. I looked it up. I looked up what a prude means. That's not me. I, I guess Puritan might work better. I'm not actually a Puritan practicer or practitioner or whatever the proper terminology would be there. Uh, but Puritan as an adjective is closer to what I am. One of my viewers actually calls me a romantic, which I actually like that. But either way, I do look at this and just kind of raise an eyebrow, which leads me naturally to her reaching out to, to Paul. I know we're rewinding a little bit here in the story, but it's, a, it's an interesting scene because, once again, as with the last episode, the slow increase of events is fairly gradual, and that gradual nature is actually reasonably well done. There's this slow escalation of things just being a little bit off, and several of them are things that you could just kind of ignore. After all, a transporter going wrong doesn't mean you're just going to start phasing in and out of existence. That doesn't even begin to, to, to cognate. I know, you're going to be like, Laura, you're an idiot. Because this is Star Trek, where tech is magic and anything can happen. Which, you're right. So I, I suppose I could see where the flux discrimination between molecular cohesion could be distending across an oscillation point, allowing for molecular cohesion to, to gradually vanish, but I still say that's all a bunch of nonsense, so moving on. But, but, it follows dream logic, doesn't it? Given what she knows of the transporters, which is barely anything, quite frankly, and I don't mean this as an insult, Hoshi, in character, knows less about transporters than I do in real life. <laughs> Again, that's not bragging, and that's not insulting. It's the point. It's, I'm getting across a point. Not everyone knows how all the time... How many of you know how cars work? Or computers? So, by the way, I don't really know how a computer works. Oh, the software side, I know very, very well. I've, I've worked on that most of my life. But you ask me how exactly a circuit functions, and I'm just going to stare at you like, because I don't know. And that's where Hoshi's at, right? She knows the transporters go, and then they go, matter, energy, matter. That's about all she knows. So, given that logic of you being pulled apart and then put back together, I'm slowly fading from reality kind of lines up in a weird and unusual way with dream logic. So, again, praise. So, she goes to T'Pol. T'Pol's a good pick. After all, T'Pol and her have already had several connections. It's probably the only character connection that uh, that Hoshi says, you know, I just realized something. Character connections 
that this literally just occurred to me. It's not in my notes. This literally just occurred to me. So I'm going to talk about this for a bit. Do you mind? I sure hope not, because this is a pre-recorded video, and I'm not going to hear your response for over a year at this point. Because I'm at that point where I'm now recording stuff past the, the part of the year where I'm at. But Character connections are one of the best tools for how you flesh out an ensemble cast. Because just bouncing the camera around a bunch isn't actually as feasible as a solution as it sounds. And even doing the bracketing method, which is you bounce it around but kind of bracket together two or three characters per sequence, can work, but invariably is going to mathematically lead to imbalance. Which is fine if that's what you're okay with. But a really good way to do this is establish character connectors. In other words, something that connects two characters together. And I was thinking about this because both Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine do this reasonably well. But I'm going to speak of Deep Space Nine in particular because that's what I was just thinking of. Nog. Now, Nog doesn't get a lot of opportunity to take the camera. So his brackets are usually infrequent and usually involve someone else of significance. And usually it's a B-plot of an episode rather than an A-plot. It's very rare Nog gets the screen, you know. And when he does, it's awesome. Paper Moon. But fact remains. What they did, though, was they had a connection between Nog and Odo, and a connection between Nog and Sisko, and a connection between Nog and Rom, and a connection between Nog and Quark, and a connection between Nog and Jake. I'm going to stop here, but there's actually others. And thus, because of the fact that there are connectors... Even a story that's actually focusing on O'Brien or Cisco or Odo or Jake can then have Nog be a part of that because there's a connector between the two. Whether it's because Nog is working for O'Brien or because Cisco is sponsoring Nog or because Jake is Nog's friend, you get it, right? Rom is his father, Cork is his uncle. So because of these connecting points, he can now orbit into other stories which means he's still not getting focus, but he is getting screen time. And screen time can mean development. And development is awesome when it comes to characters. Now, I, I know that probably sounds like me just saying water is wet to a lot of you, so please forgive me. I, I, I always try to not sound like I'm talking too far down to you guys, but at the same time go into detail, because I get plenty of requests to not just assume everyone knows what I'm talking about. And also, that's my teaching style, if I'm being completely honest. I'd be a terrible teacher. All right, let me explain this thing you already know in total detail. See, that's the way I want to be taught. I love I love things just going really into the nitty-gritty, um, <clears throat> which is actually a step down below what I go into. The reason I'm bringing this all up, though, is because Nog is a more fleshed-out character than Hoshi. Now, you could say Nog had more time, but I would say Nog had more connectors. How many connectors does Hoshi have? I'm just going to answer you. One. Hoshi is connected to to Paul. That's it. Oh, sure, Archer dragged her on board, but there's never been any real connector there. Um, you could argue Travis, but that was actually kind of off-camera and in one episode, so that doesn't count either. She's not really friends with anyone. She doesn't really hang out with anyone. Nobody else shares her interests. She's not sponsored by anyone. There's no connecting point between Hoshi and anyone else except to Paul. Now, they have consistently done the T'Pol-Hoshi connector pretty well, I would say. This is why this came to my mind, because it's logical that when she goes to 
I, I keep saying logical. It's reasonable when she goes to 10 forward that she wants to sit. I just called it 10 forward, didn't I? When she wants to sit with DePaul at the mess hall, that is definitely not 10 forward. Although if Guinan was on that show, could you imagine? It makes sense that she would want to sit with her. She has a connector with her. They have previous interactions. Hoshi has been taught disciplined by her, both on camera and implied off. Uh, the two have butted heads at several times, but have a professional respect for each other, right? Decent connector. Okay, cool. Great way to try and flesh that out. Could you add more? And this li lines up with the problem, because we can see several of the main five tend to have multiple connectors, usually with each other. Although some of those are extremely artificial, looking at you, Archer. This, I think, is the biggest problem with both Travis and with Hoshi. They don't really have any connectors whatsoever with other cast members. So any episodes about them have to effectively exclusively focus on them and thus carry the weight of it entirely by itself. And that means those episodes have to be really good. And you see why that can be a problem. It also means that in every other episode, they don't get focus at all. So they may get a large amount of focus in one episode, but they effectively might as well not even be in the next eight episodes. You know, this is getting into an 80-20 bit of theory here. <sighs> now, I know what you're saying. What would you do, Lore? I'd actually rather hear what you'd do. Honest, honest question. What would you do to... Let's just talk about Hoshi specifically in this one, because this is her episode. Who would you add connectors to with Hoshi? And, of course, what kind of connectors? We've already established the one to DePaul. That's good. Absolute praise there. Um... We could add... I should... Uh, nope, I said I wouldn't speculate. At least I thought that. I want to know your thoughts. Where would you connect her and how? Because I think in the absence of those connections, that, I think, helps to explain why the characters fall so flat. And allow me to use one other show of, as an example of this. Voyager. For all the many flaws Voyager has, many of the characters have many connectors with many other characters. It, as I've said many times, the cast and the chemistry between them are what really held up Voyager for me. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks that. And there are many connecting points established very early on, some of which were abandoned. Tom and Chakotay is a good example of one that was just thrown out the window after the first episode. But there are many connecting points there. And some grew over time. And some went away over time. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I think the biggest problem with Neelix is that his biggest connectors were with Tom, jealousy, and Kess, an unhealthy relationship. The one with Tom went away, and the one with Kess went away. He did have one other thing that helped bolster Neelix in later episodes. That would be his connector with Tuvok. But the problem is that was it. Just like Hoshi, he only really had the one. And I think that's part of the problem with Neelix. It's not the whole problem with Neelix, but it is part of it. I mean, Ethan Phillips is a good actor, for God's sakes. He's not Shakespearean. He's, he's not Megario, Megalo, super mega actor. But he's a good actor. So, come on, guys. Anyways, now that I've talked extensively about uh, character design and theory, I might have to actually put that into the Lorium's list. Character connectors. Let's talk about why uh, this episode super sucks. No, hang on. Let's, let's, let's build up to this. Um... They, uh, she, she tries to talk to T'Pol. T'Pol is pretty stiff, but otherwise reasonable. Um, 
there's another scene I want to talk about the construction of television or visual media specifically. It's a scene where Tucker and Hoshi are just chatting while exercising. You'll notice this is not the first time they've pulled this trick, and you're probably thinking, why? There's a lot of scenes in fiction which, if you break it down, crucible it to its core element, what it is is people talking. Now, some people think that's a bad thing. Some people think that's a good thing. I always, as ever, think it's down to how you present it and how you do it. I could literally watch uh, Andreas Katsoulos and Peter Jurassic just chat in a broken-down turbo lift for an hour of television and be completely entertained by that. But that's down to the amazing characters, the writing of those characters, and the presentation of those characters. Those actors were wonderful in their roles individually, wonderful together, and very well written. So, you can see how there's no set rule for making that work. So if you're not sure, remember, there's no connector between Hoshi and Tucker. If you're not sure, and if you're not quite sure how to make that scene work, what you do is you have something going on while it's happening. Uh, it adds to the flow of a scene. It makes it seem less dry. It makes more people think, okay, something's going on while the conversation's happening. You've probably noticed this a lot If now that you're thinking about it, especially in Star Trek. One of the most common things will, is we'll have two characters talking about something while they're working on something. Not exercise, but like working on the engines or trying to figure something out. Data is like, oh, it seems to be this and this. Then he turns to Jordy. I wonder if it's such and such. Maybe we should talk about this personal element. Jordy's like, ah, I don't know, Data. LeVar Burton does this great ah, kind of noise. I can't emulate it. He does a great job of it. Um, this is not satire. He really does. He's, he's awesome at that. But LeVar Burton's awesome in general. So, <laughs> he, you know, and they're just talking about this personal matter while they're doing the scans that they're about the plot, right? It's a very common technique. Hence the idea here. They're exercising while they're talking, so there's something happening, and I just can't seem to center myself on this freaking camera. And they're they're talking. They're actually I have a little preview paint. It's like this big in the corner, so I can use. They're talking. They're exercising. It's a little, it's a technique. And it, as always, I'm being the boring teacher, who's teaching about how this stuff is made. I I, I geek out about it. Okay, I'm sorry. I love the making of things like this. This is one of the reasons I would love to get into making my own show. Not this. Obviously, this is a show. But you know what I mean, right? I'd say television, but if I say that, there's actually a decent number of people who will not understand what I mean by that because we've gotten so far that TV isn't TV anymore. This then leads to her taking off her shirt because sexy. I will say this, this is loads better than her being topless in uh, Shockwave Part 2. Just just saying. <laughs> um, so, she doesn't face to the floor, because of course she doesn't. There's some really good camera work. Very minor stuff. I hate to continue geeking about that, but I mean, the episode itself isn't that great. There's this great shot where they're talking about Hoshi and Sickbay, and there's flocks, and there's... Archer and there's T'Pol and they're talking and the camera's just doing this really slow pan. And as they're talking about her and as the pan continues, Hoshi just really slowly comes into view and she's just squatted on the console listening in in the distance. It's a really effective shot. Because the shot is all about her and it's effectively from her perspective. That's why the focus of the shot is on the people talking, not the person listening. Because this is her viewpoint. It's just a creative way to pre present that, hence the slow pan. Very, very cool, very cool shot. I wanted to give praise to that. Um, 
so uh, you know Tucker's upset at this that this the losing Hoshi and this is horrible and the, she also hears the whisper of the transporter uh, not that not the first time and the, oh my God there's alien sabotage no uh, what do we do so she goes to Archer. Just like with with T'Pol, I'm pretty sure the only reason Hoshi goes to Archer and yells at him, thinking it will somehow work, is because he's Archer and we need that mandate. Then she starts interrupting with something in order to do an SOS call. That's clever. How? <laughs> I know, I know. We're not supposed to question the logic. It is dream logic. I can reach into something and interact with the energy of something, even if I can't interact with the physicality of something. Which, of course, breaks down the moment you think about it at all. But again, giving it a pass. Not as well constructed as the previous thing, though. The previous dream logic was very carefully constructed to have nice patterns to it. So it all made sense in dream logic. This feels more like standard Star Trek logic. A.K.A. magic. Sorry, confetti. Whoosh, magic. So that's why I'm a little bit harsher about this than the rest of it. Anyway, so she does the S.O.S., and obviously they don't know Morse code that well. Hell, I don't know Morse code that well. I, th I would think they would did, but, you know, you can't expect to Paul to actually study something like that. And Archer's a moron, so all this lines up. Woo! We also find out that Buck Bokai is Hoshi's father. I'd say that explains a lot, but I don't know. Anyways, <clears throat> so, she... She goes down. You could tell this is a dream more than anything else because there's this guy laying a bomb on the warp core, which nobody notices. Ignoring the fact that he is very visible and would be making a ton of noise, the thing that really gives this away is there's a camera shot. It starts here. Here's the. Uh, let me do it from your perspective. Here's the warp core. Here's the shot. And the shot does this thing where it pans down so you can see what the viewers or what the people working on the core because there's a person like right there on the warp core sees the problem is the camera has to pan down so far down here as it's looking up that you basically have to be crawling on the floor to not see the person's head now in fairness this actually lines up with dream logic unlike the previous thing so I'm, I'm willing to give this one a pass it's just funny they bothered to show how nonsensical this is at this point so, it was all a dream. <sighs> Did you know, usually I talk about this thing at the beginning of the episode, but I saved this for this moment. Did you know that this is listed on every worst Enterprise list I could find? Its position varies wildly. Sometimes it's 4th, sometimes it's 11th. But it is on every list I have looked up. And near as I can tell, the overwhelming reason is because of the fact that it was all just a dream. Imagine the next phase, which is an episode I enjoy quite a lot. Imagine if at the end, nope, it was all just a dream. Jordy and Roe were just dreaming up the whole thing. Quantum, quantum, the end. Imagine if in Remember Me, Beverly's episode, it turns out to have all just been a dream. And, I mean, I could use other examples of this. The problem with It's All Just a Dream is so extensive that I don't think I can fairly cover it in this video. It is a large-scale problem that affects people on multiple levels, 
and is almost universally panned. It takes extreme care and tremendous craft in order to make a, a work of fiction have it was all just a dream and have that actually good. And even then, there are still people who are not going to like it because it was all just a dream, because too many people have just been burned on that concept for years and years and years. The really extreme examples of this go back in fiction well before Star Trek, or at least before TNG, because, uh, yeah, that's, that was an issue. <sighs> I've noticed it's not as prolific as it used to be, probably in part because pe people hate it so damn much. Which, of course, makes this all the more egregious that they actually pulled. It was all just a dream. They try to make it sound like it mattered. You stu stood on the transporter pad, even in your mind, and that matters. Uh, not buying it. So the ridiculous majority of the episode was all just in her mind, and while they do a good job of the in-your-mind thing, they do, as I've tried to show in my terrible, terrible way, this just torpedoes any enjoyment I have of the episode right into the ground. Not lamentation-worthy. It's too much good in the middle part of the episode, but yikes. I can absolutely see why people look at this and just go, Wow! I will never watch this episode again. This is going on the skip list for me. And I wouldn't blame other people if they did the same thing. Which leads me to the question, what would you do if it wasn't just a dream? Well, the most obvious answer is to make it legit. She actually did phase out, just like in the next phase. There are, however, two major problems with that. Um, first, the phasing out in the next phase was already problematic as is, and was part of an extremely experimental thing the Romulans were coming up with over two centuries from now. That is, uh, I, I know we're just ignoring tech continuity, but that's a little bit of a swallow. I guarantee you, if this was a phasing thing, there'd be people, including me, who would complain about the fact that it's a phasing thing, even if it's a freak coincidence or accident. The second problem is the dream logic I already mentioned. The episode does a weirdly good job of the dream logic. That's actually something that's always been one of Braga's strengths, is that kind of uh, psychological pseudo-inconsistent thing that's done on, you know, well-done inconsistency, as opposed to I-screwed-up-inconsistency. That's always been one of his strongest suits, and one of the reasons why some of his best-known episodes in TNG were head-game episodes. Uh, so, you know. <laughs> he does a good job with that here. I will give him... At least I'm pretty sure it's Braga. Let me, let me fact check really quick. I'm almost positive this is a Braga episode. I stopped looking at writers. Because I would look at the writing and it's like, okay, and it's it's Berman and Braga. It is Berman and Braga, by the way. Let's look at the writers for the next episode. Precious Cargo. Um, Berman and Braga. Okay. Let's look at the ep the writers for The Catwalk. Oh, it's not, it's Mike Sussman and Phyllis Strong. Awesome, awesome. What about Dawn? That's another person. Holy crap, we had two episodes in a row not written by them. And then we go to Stigma, which is Berman and Braga. Yeah, no, they are the overwhelming majority story credit for this show, which, at least for season one and two, which is the problem, <laughs> if I'm being blunt. Oh, I don't even mean that as a dig against them, because that it's hard to do that. It's hard to be basically the sole writer for an entire TV show. A little burnout-y. Anyways, so... We'd have to cut out all the dream logic stuff, and the phasing thing itself is problematic. So how would you fix it? Real question. What would you do to fix this? I know that's two questions I've asked you today, but I think it's a fascinating question. Because 
the first and most obvious thing I would do is I would tie both questions together. This would become a connector between Hoshi and someone else, which would carry forward into the future. Remember how Hoshi trained with the phasers with, with uh, Reed? That seems like a connector, right? Nope. Came and went. It's already gone, actually. It will not be coming back, unless it comes back in Season 2 in a way I'm not aware of, because don't really remember it. But have this be part of a thing, you know, become part of the transporter club. And maybe she starts to get more interested in the actual physics of it. So she connects with Tucker, the other person who beamed with her. And he's like, well, I don't know much about how the transporter works either. But the two of them start to look into it and kind of learn a shared interest there. A hobby, nothing romantic, but a pseudo, it's not even quite a friendship thing. I mean, it is, but it's more of a friendship of shared interest. It's part of being a club, actually, is what I'd call that. Like, imagine being part of a Trek fan club, for example. And now we have that connector point between the two of them. So that, you know, we have that. But that still doesn't fix the other problem. So, why not have it so that she is phasing. We do eject the dream stuff. I hate to do that. It's the better part of the episode. But let's eject the dream stuff. Make it more focused on Hoshi and Tucker. Again, this act, in fact, actually, let me rewind this a second. Let's make this a little bit of a Tucker-centric episode. Hear me out. Because a lot of the character stuff would be him dealing with his guilt in a way. There's a great scene. Trenier nails it, because Trenier's awesome. About him feeling really guilty about, you know, it should have been me. I should have been the one who died instead of you, and I'm so sorry, and blah, blah. Make that, more, that one scene more of the focus of more of the episode. Eject the aliens entirely. They add nothing to this, and they only make sense when this is a dream. So they're gone. Um, but have it on him and her, and have him start to study the transporter, and start to look into it, and he finds out about this phase distortion thing that has phased her out. By the way, I would have her be phased the whole episode, just like in the next phase. She comes through, she's out of phase with physicality, so she's having issues and... Let's just ignore gravity and, and air and light and just let's just go with the premise here. <laughs> massive, massive dose of sugar with the medicine. And once we've done that, make her phase the whole episode, make Tucker trying to figure it out. Tucker successfully figures it out with her help. Like she studies over it and she like picks up on something he doesn't. And so she has to communicate that to him somehow. And that's where the Morse code things come in. And Tucker would actually know Morse code. Actually, probably Reed would know Morse code. So Reed's present when Tucker's dealing with it. Like, Reed comes in and just tries to console Tucker, and Tucker's just staring at the screen and trying to figure it out. And Hoshi's just like, beep, 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 beep. And Reed's like, what's up with that light over there? Ah, oh, it's, it's been fits in for the last couple minutes. I'm not sure what's up with it. Reed pauses for a second. That's an SOS. What? Wait, what? That's an SOS? And then she does a symbol, and Reed, who actually knows Morse code, can then be like, oh, it's a message from Hoshi? Turns to look at Tucker. Tucker looks at him. Oh, God, maybe she did get out of phase. If I can, if I can figure out some way. And then she tries to convey her message, and the two work it out, and they save her, and boom, we have a new connector, we have an episode that works better, and Hoshi has been brought up more as a character, and so has Tucker. There you go. There's the Lore Runner edition. What do you think? Really? Because I just came up with that right off the top of my head just now. Not in my notes at all. I, I mean, I can't prove that. I, mean, I could hold up the notes for like 20 seconds while you read them, but I, I can't really prove it's not there. What would you do? 
Let me know in the comments below, and I'll rate, comment, and subscribe on the next AVPN Nord. Wait, it's 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 VP it's Nord VPN. God, I always screw up my own jokes. It's Nord VPN, and it's like Raid Shadow Legends. I bet I'm dating myself with that. I bet it's someone else by the time this video goes live. That's like the regular YouTube sponsor. You guys are my sponsor, and you're awesome for it. Thank you.